This is part two of Brian's jumbo-sized birthday episode on the Spy Kids trilogy. To hear an intro and coverage of Spy Kids 1 and Spy Kids 2, check out part one. And with that, we arrive at Spy Kids 3D. Which, if you watch it on a streaming service, it might just be called Spy Kids 3. This is from 2003. 3D movies weren't exactly in vogue in 2003. It was kind of a throwback at that point. And so, when you went to the theater, you got the classic red and blue glasses like Biff's crony wears in Back to the Future. (laughs) Uh, Because... If you know anything about 3D history, and of course I do, as long-time listeners might know from our uh, latest Christmas Carol episode, for instance. But, like, there was a wave of 3D cinema in the 50s, such as uh, when Creature from the Black Lagoon and uh, House of Wax were coming out in, like, 1953 to 1955. And then there was another wave in the 80s, when we had, like, Jaws 3D, Weird Al Yankovic had a album called In 3D. So I think that might be part of the reason it's commented on into the Back to the Future movies, you know? It's, like, something that was relevant in the 50s and in the 80s. Mm. And then it would come back again with the release of Avatar in 2009. And so, like, from, like, maybe 2009 to 2013, you had another big wave. Uh, so I think it's no coincidence that we got Spy Kids 4 in 2011, for instance. But here, uh, 3D was kind of out of vogue at this point. Did Spy Kids 4 also have 3D in addition to smell vision y- Yes, it did. We learned that uh, today, and of course I had to order the 3D Blu-ray for Spy Kids 4. But it doesn't come with the cards? It doesn't sound like it does, which is sad. I might have to look up on eBay if anybody is selling one of the cards. (laughs) Probably pricey. But we'll get there soon. We're almost there. I'm sure it is pricey. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But Spy Kids 3, 2003, I remember we went to the theaters. You know, I was 13 at this point, and, and maybe part of me thought this wasn't the coolest thing to be doing. But I will say, I actually saw this in theaters twice. Wow. Uh, because we we saw it once, and then we went again with our aunt and uncle to see it. This was the same year I remember also seeing Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl twice. I, I want to know, what's the most that either of you have seen any movie in theaters? Well, it's going to be Andrew, and what movie would that be? Um, the Night Before by Seth Rogen. And... Oh, <laughs> that's great. Go on. Yeah, well, I know that one. Um, so I saw it once in normal theaters, and then I wanted to show it to Isaiah, my roommate and co-host, on something different. So we went to see it at University Mall. And then Brian that year had his annual pass to University Mall. So then, uh, actually, I guess I'm coming. The time we saw it with Isaiah was maybe with brian i think but then there was the time that brian was going to go see rocky horror picture show at 
University Mall, but they weren't doing their weekly show in that time, which was a surprise once we got there. Yeah, it was like the one week of the year when they didn't do it. Fun fact, they don't do it at all anymore. But so that week, they they just weren't doing it. And so Andrew said, oh, let's just go see the night before again. And so the third time for him. Yeah. I guess if the room counts, I've seen many repeated showings of the room in a theater environment. But as far as like an official run, Andrew with Night Before holds the record. There are a handful of movies that I've seen twice. Uh, what about you, Dan? What's your history? I'm surprised that I surpass you, but I saw Toy Story 3 in 2010 four times in theaters. Wow. Wow. I only saw that one twice. I saw the th- Star Wars Episode 3. See, both both of these... Well, Toy Story 3, I like a lot more than Star Wars Episode 3. But both of them, it wasn't like I went to go see it. Like, oh, I want to go see it again. I just happened to go again. It was always like a different social group was going to see it. And I always opted in. And uh, I saw Star Wars Episode 3 three times. So I think those are my two most at once. But... I actually also saw the night before at University Mall, and it definitely holds the distinction for most alcohol that I have snuck into a theater. Me and my friend and my wife went, and we all like stuffed tons of airplane bottles in our pockets. <laughs> yeah, the next morning wasn't too fun, but the movie itself was fun. Yeah, somehow I've missed two years in a row, but for six years I watched the night before every year. So I've seen it like close to 10 times. Wow. Yeah. Anyways, we're talking about Spy Kids 3. (laughs) (laughs) So something I learned this time was that apparently when this movie was made, they had a hard time getting everybody together to make it. And in retrospect, that's very clear. This is a heavily Junie focused movie. Carmen is not there very much. I mean, that was pretty much it. It said at the beginning that she's trapped in level four. And I mean, the movie's only like 70 minutes long, excluding credits, but takes a very long time for her to show up. But it is impressive that they get as many people as they do to finally show up at the end. Yeah. So, Brian, one thing you, I can't recall whether or not you mentioned at the end when we were talking about Spy Kids 2, is that at the end, Junie declares he is done with the spy life. And this kind of maybe has some thematic relevance, but it's tenuous at best. But that allows Spy Kids 3 to open with Junie as the private eye, the guy roaming around trying to make his own in a gray world. Yeah. The gum shoe. Yeah. And this doesn't end up holding significant import for the rest of the movie, but it at least gives us a pretense at the beginning why he's separated from everyone else. Yeah, yeah, he's outside of the agency, you're right, because he's unhappy with how he had been treated. You know, Gary Giggles was just able to, once all the adults weren't roofied anymore, he was able to point to Junie and say, oh, it's his fault, even though they don't know what happened. It's the Spy Kids' fault collectively that the Transmooker got away. I mean, arguably, I mean, the Secret Service shouldn't even be drinking at all. 
and adults should be the responsible ones. So, like, how do you pin this on Junie? But he's unhappy. He's out now. He's a private eye. Yes, indeed. But you raised something that I want to just really quickly circle back onto. So the first Spy Kids movie, it, we learn gradually that there's a major conspiracy, lots of people. But then in the second movie, almost nobody's arrested. Everybody's still doing a thing. Minion is still there. It's like people don't get arrested or fired or like, I don't know. They're hanging around. Yeah, Minion is suddenly cool in the second one. And Donegan is working with the spies again in the third one. Dude was like yeah. straight up taking over the world. And now he's like, oh, he's a sidekick on a TV show. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I do like but we we didn't explain this, but yeah, at the end of the first movie, Tony Shalhoub's minion gets mutated and he gets it worse than all of them because his head gets split into four heads. And he has, like, fancier prostheses than the rest of them uh -huh. because the faces can move independently. And it's pretty creepy. I think that only happens once right after it happens, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> but also, he's down with it right before... Yeah, he does it himself, doesn't he? <laughs> the transformation takes place. He says, idiots! Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, you're right. He never really tries to reverse it. Well, which we know Floop can do. He can do it in 10 seconds. <laughs> also, is is he a foodly or is he some other kind of thing? Oh, that's a good point. Because he's still himself. Okay, no, he is a Fugly because the name <laughs> of the show changes from Floop's Fugly's plural to Floop's Fugly. <laughs> Referring just to him. He's transcended all other flugies. It, it's like uh, Twin Pines to Lone Pine Mall. There's just one Fugly now. <laughs> but yeah, I like in two, they like call Minion on the phone at one point. And he says, well, you know, things are kind of floopy around here for my tastes. But, you know, he just, he's just there to do the job. <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> he's just there to punch the clock. With his foreheads. <laughs> but yeah, a Junie-focused film here in three is what I'm trying to say. He, he explains in this kind of neo-noir voiceover that uh, something he's saving up money for in his private practice is he wants to buy this popular and highly anticipated video game called Game Over which is going to be, I guess, an MMO, and an online game that a bunch of people can play. And it's created by this enigmatic, reclusive figure called the Toymaker. This is the time, I think we should address this Willy Wonka thing. Because all three of these Spy Kids films are about an isolated, creative genius. And he's off in his own world that he's made. I think it's not a coincidence that all of these movies were like written, directed, edited, scored by Robert Rodriguez. Right. It's like each villain is also simultaneously a misunderstood hero who had a vision of the world that nobody else could understand. And the kids somehow get in some way. 
And I think I agree with you that that is somewhat of a reflexive expression of identity by Robert Rodriguez, like how he sees himself and the things he creates. And I don't know at what point he decided that was intentionally a thing that he was going to have in all of his kids spy movies, like this bit of self-insertion here, but it's definitely there in the midst of all the other themes that are going on here with family and cultural identity and stuff. So I don't know. It's pretty interesting though. They kind of are the same, but they all have their own twist to them and they're all interesting actors. I mean, Alan Cumming in the first one is the least high profile actor selected, but they all have kind of flamboyant over the top performances in some ways. Yeah. Because here in the third one, it's Rocky. It's Sylvester Stallone playing the toy maker who created this video game. And it's not just one of him either, because apparently he is like, his consciousness is trapped in the game and he's made copies of himself to keep himself company. They're like all different facets of his personality. So like one is always arguing for the hostile approach and one is arguing for the peaceful approach and one is arguing for the scientific approach. This is one of the worst miscastings I have ever seen in any movie. I did not know why he was cast as the super inventive. Like, I think they're intentionally doing an against type bit of casting here because he's like the sort of gawky inventor reclusive type. Stallone is like the rugged guy, you know, that's how he is. And so I think they were trying to like see if they can make some magic and sparks happen there. But for me, I was just baffled the whole time. I got something for you, though. Here's my dream recasting. I spent like a half hour thinking about who would I have cast instead of Sylvester Stallone. Just imagine this character arguing with clones of himself about like the same things that Sylvester Stallone is arguing with himself about here. Jeff Goldblum. Wouldn't he have been so good as the toy maker? Yeah, I agree. That would be good. But anyways, we're stuck. We have Sylvester Stallone, so we can proceed with that. Yeah, and Junie finds out, kind of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade style, that Carmen had previously been sent in to investigate this game that's about to go worldwide. It's about to have its grand release, and she's disappeared into the game, and he's he's got to now return to the OSS and enter the game and try to bring her back. So he returns to the OSS and he finds out that Donigan is in charge of this project. I guess he's still, yeah, in the mix, still at a high level. We learn that Carmen's body is accounted for. It's like sitting there in a chair or something, but her brain is in the game. And the mission that Junie has is to enter the virtual world, make it to the end of level five of the game, and that if he wins the game, he'll have the opportunity to shut it down. Now, this is essentially the plot of Ready Player One, if you've ever read or seen that, which wouldn't come out for eight years. Totally. Like the book wouldn't be out for eight years. No, this kind of blew my mind. This felt ahead of its time uh, in that regard. I mean, obviously, we don't quite even have anything that's this level of immersion, but like, the fact that we were in 2003 with virtual worlds pretty fully realized 
seems kind of advanced. I will note also, and I'll, I'll briefly touch on this later, that the two Machete films also feel very ahead of their times in terms of the themes that they dealt with. But I agree. I was getting Ready Player One vibes. It's like if you get to the end of the game, you get control of the world from the reclusive creator who's implanted his Easter eggs in the world. Yeah, and they also say you'll get untold riches, they keep mentioning. Like, the other players all want the untold riches, which is very Ready Player One. I also thought this was sort of an extension of the theme from the first one about culture that kind of takes over the lives of the young ones, just brought to a cartoonish extreme, because in the first movie, it's just a dopey TV show, but here the culture that the kids is kind of replacing their real lives, their family lives, etc., is this totally immersive fantasy CGI world. Yeah, it's a world you can literally disappear into. But Donegan also warns Junie that he can't release the toy maker, who is himself trapped inside the game. And this didn't make any sense at all to me this time. Uh, for whatever reason, I hand-waved it when I was 13, but this is just nonsense. Apparently, the OSS imprisoned the toy maker in cyberspace. So, like, I guess he's got a body somewhere. But they decided it was a good idea to trap him in the computer world. But also, they're allowing him to create and release an MMO from inside Cyberworld? <laughs> It's bizarre. I mean, it's kind of in line with the rest of the series where Floop is making a TV show and Steve Buscemi is making a Jurassic Park slash zoo kit you can buy off the shelves. But like if the OSS put him in the like the brain prison and it would make sense that they would like know where his body was. And if they really needed to stop him, they could just like kill the body or something i don't know oh no i mean it's total horseshit like this this movie barely has a plot that makes any sense whatsoever i'm completely with you it's very weird but just to return for a moment to this setup where the toy maker is talking to multiple versions of himself in his mind the the violent one and the peaceful one and on and on uh it reminds me of something called subreddit simulator have you ever seen this is this where they used, like, AI to make fake posts in a bunch of different subreddits? Yes. So, on Reddit, there is a subreddit called r subreddit simulator. And it's all these comment threads, but the different commenters are, like, AI representations of different popular subreddits. So, like, the bot representing our baseball will answer everything in an answer that, like, ties into baseball. Or, like, our politics will answer in a political way. And so every time I see this, uh, it makes me think of this scenario in Spy Kids where... Sylvester Stallone will go to his alter egos and the general will always answer in a military way and the scientist will always answer in a stereotypical smart way. I don't know. It's it's neither here nor there, but it, it is something that I think back to. But I, I know that 
we're trying your patience, listeners. We're, we're dragging on. And obviously, we do have other corners of the Spy Kids cinematic universe to explore. Luckily, Spy Kids 3 does not have much of a plot. It's really just an excuse to string together action sequences because Junie has to make his way through the levels. So there's like a mech suit battle and there's a motorcycle race, which of course we also got in Ready Player One, the movie. There's a scene where like there's going to be a, a physical battle, like a PvP thing. And it turns out that the players who you think are going to be partners actually have to fight each other, kind of Squid Game style. Uh, there's a level where they're surfing in lava. Really, it's just brainless action sequence after brainless action sequence. It's kind of confusing what even constitutes a level. I agree. It's, it's not always... They said, oh, we're on level four now. I was like, I thought you were on level one still. Why? How, when did you get to level four? That was news to me. Like, level one is maybe like a starting point that nothing happens on. So that's just where the pogo toads are. And then after that, there's the moon. Yeah, because they're like, they're like jump off this spring to get to level two. But then he's up there and they're like, no, you have to fight the robot to go to level two. It's like, well, wait a minute. Is the robot battle level two or is it not level two? Also, he goes to the higher levels with people that don't have the suit from the moon battle. And so what level are they actually on? Yeah. It's, it's a good question because he does travel with this group of players who are in the game early and they say that they're beta testers. So we've got one who is the strong guy and one is the smart guy and one is the cool guy. <laughs> that's me. I want to be, that's my identity. I'm the cool guy. <laughs> and again, he has the like frosted waxed tips on his hair. Literally, all of them remind me of Reese from Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it. This one guy has these glasses. Someone did some real innovation in the glasses sphere because they don't go around his head like the ear circumference. They go over his head. <laughs> <laughs> He looks like Ant-Man. He's got, like, the 2015 Ant-Man costume. Real efficiency. It's like, hey, what if instead of going to a straight line from the where the edge of your eyes are to the back of your head and using that as the source of tension that holds the glasses on your head, what if we made this really elaborate arc over your head? And that was the way we were going to hold the Also, probably when you take them off, you get a horrible crease in the top of your head. Your hair. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> but these three dudes become convinced that Junie, who seems to be progressing through the levels with relative ease, is the guy. And the guy is their term for the faceless hero depicted on the game box and other promotional material for Game Over. So this is like a messiah figure that they believe in. They're of the opinion that if they can find the guy and, and help the guy, maybe they can make it through to the end and finally win the game and get these riches. At one point, Junie gets a lifeline, and he's able to summon in any one person from the real world that he wants. 
and there's no explanation for how or why this works. <laughs> I, I This is another thing I remembered making more sense, but he's able to pull in the grandfather. So something we haven't said is Ricardo Montalban is in a wheelchair in these movies. And from the DVD I learned, I guess he was in real life too. But it, one of the best things about this movie, and it gets kind of also recycled in Ready Player One, is the idea that... One of the big benefits of a virtual world is that you're not bound by disabilities or stereotypes. Like, you can really be anybody. You don't have to be the person that you are in reality when you have the veil that the virtual world gives you. So Ricardo Montalban gets this power-up that lets him stand up and have robot legs, and he's not in the wheelchair anymore. He also is obsessed with the toy maker. And whenever he talks about the toy maker, he has this blue butterfly that he gazes at as he waxes about how he wants to find the toy maker. And it, how much am I stretching to think that the grandfather and the toy maker had a past romantic relationship, or at least that that's on the grandfather's mind as he's hunting down the, the toy maker here? Yeah, I mean, there are some like Dumbledore Grindelwald vibes. Right. Because apparently they worked together at some point in the past, and through some unspecified accident, the toy maker caused the grandfather to be crippled and end up in the wheelchair. Oops, yeah. I remember there being more of an explanation to this, but they just say, yep, he's the reason that grandpa's in the wheelchair. So I don't know what happened, if it was an explosion or like a stack of something fell over or... Or what it was, but I guess he's behind it. Too much toy making. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, as they're progressing through the levels, Junie does run into like a, a dark haired cyberpunk emo chick named Demetra, who's going to be his love interest in this movie. No mention of the president's daughter from 2, by the way. I want to know what happened to her. It's a Roxanne situation where just like in Goofy Movie 1 to Goofy Movie 2, we can just assume that Max broke up with Roxanne, didn't work out, and he's moved on here. I think Junie broke up with the president's daughter and he's moved on. And it happened between films, between stories. The administration changed and he wasn't into it anymore. Right. We find out that the toy maker is actually kind of streamlining the players and and what do you what do you call it railroading i don't know what the term is in video gaming but when you're being guided along and helped along because in some ways the toy maker is making it easier for them because this actually makes a lot of sense he wants to be freed and if they find him in level five they're gonna have some way to free him this is what donnegan warned about honestly the toy maker's plan makes more sense than whatever the oss is doing we also get the sense that Grandpa is seeking out the toy maker for revenge, or as Dan might have it, a torrid resumption of their love affair. <laughs> Unresolved sexual tension. Uh, they do finally recover Carmen on level four so that Alexa Vega can be in this movie for 15 minutes. She She definitely does look older than the last movie. I mean, I guess they all do, but... It's that age. Time has passed. Also, she has a robot hand 
or something, which is never discussed. <laughs> she certainly has it on the DVD case, so she doesn't do much with the robot hand, but yeah, she's got one. This is also around when we get the cameo that just flabbergasted me. Oh, yes, because when this posse makes it to the door of level five, and they've been debating for a while, is Junie the guy? Well, the real guy strolls up, and it's Elijah Wood in a cameo. And this was the same year that Return of the King came out, so big star Elijah Wood at this point. Probably more than at any point before or since. Right. He gets, like, a couple lines that are kind of dramatic Lords of the Rings-style lines. And yeah, he gives, like, a pump-up speech. <laughs> and then he opens the door to level five, and he immediately dies. Yeah. It's Samuel L. Jackson in Deep Blue Sea, where he's giving a motivational speech and he gets eaten by a shark. But it's Elijah Wood, and he just dies four minutes into his cameo. And I, I was digging it. That was a good twist. Yeah, I liked this seeing it in the movie theater back in the day. Because they have this, like, counter system for lives on their chest that tells how many lives they have. And, Andrew, what was what was your thought on these lives? Um, yeah, that was a big one. I had my notes for this movie. They're completely arbitrary. <laughs> like, Junie gets completely yeeted up into the atmosphere and falls back down and loses like three. And then he tosses Demetra fairly lightly into the wall. And I'm pretty sure she loses even more. It's just all over the place. Well, they can use, yeah, like you said, multiple lives at once. And if they go down from one, they don't go down to zero. They go down to point point five. five. What's the point? Yeah. Why do numbers exist anymore if that's what we're going to do well, with Well, to be fair, Dungeons & Dragons does something like that, where, like, when you get to zero, there's, like, a limbo stage where you're not quite dead and you can be restored until you go, like, fully to zero. I guess so. But also, was Elijah really the guy? Because he had 99 lives, not that they did him much good. Yeah. But... <laughs> it's like he falls down and his 99 goes down to 0.5 immediately. Yeah, it's real weird. It's, we're we're talking uh, who's line level logic for the lives <laughs> at this point. But uh, Andrew, off pod, you were talking about the life pack that shows up at one point. Oh, yes. Uh, Junie's with the other dudes, Arnold and whatever the rest of their names are. And they come across this life pack and all of them say they've never seen one before because Junie's a cut. He gives his to the deceiver. Oh, which I guess is getting spoilers. A <laughs> wow, way to drop well. <laughs> the bomb. Yeah, yeah, Junie's a simp. He's got his e girl, yeah, and he's gonna give her the life pack. Although, I do like that all the other dudes hold him like in high regard after that. Yeah, say, doesn't he know what that means? Don't they? Doesn't he know how valuable that is? And then Rez, the cool guy, says, Oh, yeah. He knows. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> but I guess he did know what he was doing because it all works out in the end. 
so yeah. spoilers yeah, yeah but they do make it uh through <laughs> level five and pretty much the only thing they have to do in level five it seems is ignore the advice of demetra who yeah is the deceiver another legendary figure i guess similar to the guy but introduced much later so we don't really have any sense of heft behind this reveal it's a much bigger reveal to me the other thing that we learn about her around now yeah yeah because she's not real she's ai she's part of the game she's built in she's like she's a thumb thumb but she's seducing junie what's going on here i was blown my mind that she it's like an ai romance thing yeah, and actually earlier in the in the movie, Grandpa says, don't fall in love with a game. It's like foreshadowing. Right. Wow. The, the moral of the story is that there's no girls on the internet. Yeah. At least not if they're interested in you. Yeah. Don't don't get horny for his CGI breasts. And that that's the thing that you should learn from here. I made that mistake back when this was in theaters. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone really does it for you, doesn't he? <laughs> I, I think Andrew is, is referring to Demetra, but... You're right. You're right. No. <laughs> no, it was, it was a joke. I was frantically trying to unmute and... Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but now they're at the end of the game. They can either go through like this portal to go back to the real world or confront the toy maker... Remember, Donigan said, don't let the toy maker out. So they all like run out of the game and Grandpa says something like, oh, I'll hold the door open for you or or something. But we know that the Grandpa has beef with the toy maker, so we can't trust what Grandpa's going to do. And sure enough, they come back out into the real world and yeah, the toy maker's been let out. He's running rampant with giant robots and destroying the world. Uh, but what's kind of interesting is that they have to wear 3D glasses to see the robots. Because something we haven't talked about is the gimmick of this movie is, yeah, you got to have these cardboard 3D glasses. And there's like points where the characters will say, glasses on, everyone. And things popping out at you like classic 3D. And watching it in non-3D, I was like, okay, this whole shot was designed entirely so a thing could pop out at you yeah but now they got to battle these robots and so they call on first their family so we get yeah mom and dad coming back but then it's not enough because there's a bunch of robots but earlier in the film gertie giggles emily osmond said everyone's your family which is kind of a weird message but the result is that they call on every character introduced over the course of the three films. And everybody comes together to battle the toy maker. So you got Floop. You got Romero. You've got the dude who ran the amusement park at the start of two. And his son, who I don't even think showed up at that point. <laughs> this is pretty great, yeah. He's Bill Paxton, by the way. I never realized that early on. What? Really? It's Bill Paxton? I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yep. you're you're right, actually. I didn't know that until I read the credits, but you're right. Oh, I didn't know that. When 
I was 13, I felt this was really triumphant. Like, they really accomplished something here, having all the characters come together. It it felt like a big payoff after we'd watched these three films. And now, watching the DVD, there was a bonus feature talking about how they did this. And literally, they had, like, each actor in the booth for one day. Completely separate from each other. Completely antiseptic and sterile just antonio banderas can come in for like an hour and we'll <laughs> we'll edit him into the shot wow that's family everyone is family here yeah <laughs> more impressive than avengers endgame <laughs> the ultimate crossover event <laughs> uncle felix is up in there still wearing the fake mustache yeah yeah just everybody we've seen Everybody who's a human. Right. Yeah, Floop, Floop and Minion show up. One thing I want to just point out, it's, I think, worth tracking as a thread that is shared across all three movies is some consideration of family is in all three movies, but slightly different in each of them. So the first one is kind of straightforward where family is everything. You got to be with family. The second one kind of muddies that up because we see that excessive loyalty to family leads to like corruption and loss of self loss of your own morals if you're excessively loyal to family in the face of other things because we see the giggles family taking it to corruption levels and then the third one has this everyone is family theme where it's kind of trying to be there's like a little thing at the beginning where he thinks about giving money to a poor person, but no, he'd rather burn it on this dumb game that he's intrigued by. So it's like trying to turn the family theme into like a universal connection, social justice type theme. I, I think it's sufficient to say it doesn't do so with any depth, but it's very interesting how it at least is trying to think about family in a different context, but still a meaningful context the same way that the first two movies did. Yeah, that's deep. It's deeper than the movie really warrants <laughs> or delivers on. But I, I think they were going for that. And it ends with Grandpa finally confronting the toy maker. And he reveals that, in fact, he did not track him down in the name of Vengeance, uh, but also not in the name of Slash Fiction. <laughs> He has tracked him down to forgive him. And so the toy maker is so humbled by this that he powers down his robot and everyone does like a hand on hand, like a let's go team thing. Like you might do at a baseball huddle. To family. Yeah, they all put their hands into the middle and they say to family. That's what I say at my, my family dinners. All right, well, I'll have to keep that in mind. That's that's the spirit that leads to a successful family life. But it is followed by an absolute banger of a credits track, which is called Game Over. And I, I really came to appreciate it after Andrew featured it on his radio show. So what, what episode did you have this one in, Andrew? That was in our spy episode? Uh, that's actually incorrect. I'm sorry. It's, it was in your credits episode. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. But uh, we had other Spy Kids music in the Spy episode, but yes, you're right. 
And I agree it is a banger. <laughs> You're going to have your work cut out for you in the editing here, Dan, in this one. <laughs> but yeah, really good song. It's uh, Alexa Vega singing again. It's just got a lot of like video game lingo and it's catchy. It's got flamenco guitar and Andrew featured it in his credits episode of his radio show. And it's just a good trick. Good, good way to wrap up a mediocre movie. But now we're confronted with the Spy Kids legacy because it didn't stop at just three movies. There were tendrils, things that developed over the years. There, there was a gap, but what, what are some other things on our plate here, Dan? What else did you see? So a movie that is typically connected with Spy Kids Despite actually not having any explicit links whatsoever with Spy Kids, is the film made by Robert Rodriguez two years later. That is Shark Boy and Lava Girl. I think it's technically called The Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl or something like that. And this came out in 2005, starring a bunch of people. The biggest name is Taylor Lautner, plays Shark Boy. And there's kind of a main protagonist who is neither Shark Boy nor Lava Girl in this one. So I, I watched this one. Andrew, have you seen this one? Yes, I have. Uh, only while I've been down here and it was great. Yeah. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. So this movie blew my mind more than any of the Spy Kids movies. First of all, it has the single ugliest and least coherent color scheme of any movie I've ever seen in my entire life to the point that it like rises to artistry. It's like you ha would have to try to make a movie whose color scheme and visual schema made any less sense than this film. It's also just a Freudian fever dream. It's just like nonstop, like... First of all, like Shark Boy and Lava Girl are pretty much explicitly invented in the brain of this character. And like almost all of the movie takes place in like a Wizard of Oz fantasy world that is his imagination, his dreamscape. So it's like various components of his id. And there's just all this weird stuff with like a bully character who's also like his sexual rival and his parents also kind of mirror the boy and the girl and just this weird blending of all of these things into one bizarre, but entertaining story. It turned the corner from spy kids threes CGI fest that didn't quite gel into anything meaningful into something that was just like an artistic garish statement of all of the weird things of childhood and weird early digital editing and CGI. I was just like, my jaw was hanging open the whole time as I was watching shark boy and lava girl. I, I was digging it too. And I think this one, he directly pulled inspiration from his kids. I think like his son's name is racer or something. And he took dreams and story ideas that his son racer had had and turned it into a feature length thing that revolves around a dream journal which is like kind of what he actually used to make this film 
Yeah, it's definitely much more all over the place than any of the Spy Kids. The CGI, even though it's later, somehow is not as good as in the Spy Kids movies. I don't know if you'd agree with me or not, but it's rough. And then going back to Racer (laughs) in Spy Kids 2, I think. In the first one, Carmen says that her full name is some crazy Hispanic last name, middle name thing. Well, it's also got like Echo Sky in the middle. In two, Junie says his full name is Junie Rocket Racer Rebel Cortez, which are the first names of all of Robert's male children. Mm. Which I only really, I mean, I probably would have looked it up regardless, but you guys had talked about the writer credits for um, Sharp Boy and Lava Girl. And I think Racer is one of them, right? Right. I think he is the first or second child (laughs) of Robert Rodriguez. Do you have any exposure to this one, Brian? No, I haven't seen this one. I'm definitely interested. I did order the DVD because like Spy Kids 3D, this was done in the anaglyphic or red-blue style 3D, where you've got the old-school glasses. This one was from 2005. And I'm definitely curious about it. It's got Taylor Lautner, who went on to play Jacob, the werewolf in Twilight. And at least according to Miley Cyrus, she was tentatively cast as Lava Girl, but decided to accept the role of Hannah Montana instead at this same time. (laughs) I think she made the right call, I gotta say. <laughs> I agree. Probably. In the end. Uh, but yeah, I'm curious. I'm, I'm glad you guys went ahead and watched it. And it's it's kind of like a, an Axe Cop type thing, which is a, a webcomic I quite enjoyed, where an older comics artist drew on stories written by his five-year-old um, half-brother, where it's it's got the like child logic, but then brought to life through an older more accomplished artist oh yeah there's definitely some of that this one it also it has i think i already mentioned this a wizard of oz type reality and then like second world that there are a lot of things that mirror the original world and much more so than any spy kids and the other spy kids universe movies i saw blurs that reality of making things explicitly dreamlike and in an alternate reality whereas like none of the spy kids movies i guess you have the video game world in the third one but like there is a very real world explanation for that alternate reality whereas in shark boy and lava girl it's the world where the superheroes live and the ways that they kind of encounter the quote-unquote real world are of dubious reality and it's it's kind of interesting in that regard yeah i gotta check this one out i think it's worth it i i remember someone asking about how shark boy became werewolfian or something was that that was me i made that joke how did how did shark boy become a werewolf in time for twilight 2 or whatever one it is but yeah, just to recap, he is the son of some kind of shark researcher. And then the the platform that they're on gets hit by a storm. 
and Taylor gets lost in the ocean and he gets raised by sharks. And he grows gills. He's chilling with sharks and he grows gills. It's like a Tarzan to another level. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, what I'm hearing is I gotta watch this. No, I think it's worth it. Be part of the club. I prefer my Taylor as a shark man rather than a wolf man. <laughs> okay, so you're not Team Jacob, but maybe you would be Team Shark Boy? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. I would say the weirdest moment of this movie is when he is facing off against someone we recognize to be his bully in the real world, but it's in the fantasy world. And they're staring down each other. And the way that they like one up each other is they're on these like long hardened shafts of stone that just grow larger and larger the more that they stare at each other. And it's it's pretty over the top on the the Freudian imagery for me. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, you gotta watch it. Andrew, have you seen the sequel on Netflix? The the quote unquote sequel? I have not. I still need to watch it. So the thing that didn't make any sense to me is that Shark Boy and Lava Girl, and here's a semi spoiler, Brian. I it's I don't think it's gonna ruin the watching. Oh no, that's okay. That's what we're here for. It basically in the end determines to some extent that some of the characters are only dream characters. They're not real life characters. And that that is where they will live for the foreseeable future. Much in the same way as Wizard of Oz, some characters are restricted to Oz. Then the sequel, which is, is it we can be heroes? Is it we could or we can? <laughs> uh, can. We can be heroes. So I actually, I like the movie overall. It was It, it was pretty enjoyable. But it treats basically characters who had been partitioned off to the dream world as if they are real life superheroes. And I was just kind of confused what we were supposed to take away from this. Like, does that mean that we are in the dream world here? Does that mean that we should forget everything we knew previously about these characters? I don't know. But the sequel, it has a couple of characters from the first one in the second one. And it centers around, actually, they're the kids of a wide variety of superheroes, and they all have, like, diminished superpowers. So there's time-traveling superheroes, but the kids can only jump forward or backward five seconds. Some of the stupid ones are, like, there's a really fast superhero, and his kid is also fast, but he, he can hasn't figured out how to make himself fast. He can only make the space around him fast, which via quantum mechanics makes him appear very slow. So he's basically his superpower is he goes extra slow, despite him being a speed themed superhero. Uh, (laughs) This sounds really complicated. And all of the adult superheroes get taken over in an alien invasion and the kids have to figure out how to save the adults from the alien invasion. I actually, I thought it was pretty good. It worked pretty well. Um, And it looks like they might be making a second one of those. So that one's called, what is it? We Can Be Heroes. We Can Be Heroes. Man, I hope so. Even though I haven't seen it, I hope they do another one. Yeah, we got to check this out. There was also a Spy Kids Netflix series. So maybe we got to throw that in contention for the follow-up episode. too. Yeah, I saw that. Was that animated or something? I think it was. Yes, but there's thumb thumbs in the thumbnail, so <laughs> there's no way it's not good. 
there there's our episode title thumb thumbs in the thumbnail <laughs> but uh the one that i watched just before recording today was spy kids 4 if we're ready to discuss that are we mm-hmm. all right so uh also called spy kids 4d all the time in the world now this one was released in 2011 so remember 2003 i was 13 dan was 15 andrew was six so this is a gap 2011 i was 21 dan 23 andrew 14 and uh, but i do remember it coming out and the thought was well you know we're we're decently big spy kids fans we did go see two and three in the theaters so do we go and see this one i was off at college And, okay, it's a kid's movie, so ultimately the decision is probably not. Probably don't go see it. But what was going on in my head was, because the last one was Spy Kids 3D, is this one going to be Spy Kids 4D? And it was, because, again, you had the 3D glasses, but also this one had Smell-O-Vision. Ugh. They gave you in the theater scratch and sniff cards. I think... Robert Rodriguez likes movies, <laughs> I would have to say. If I had to go out on a limb, and especially older movies, like movies that maybe he saw growing up, he's drawn on older traditions. Obviously, he's a fan of Harryhausen. He likes the the older 3D stuff. And, you know, he's not afraid to throw in new special effects technologies, but I think this smell vision is another throwback. Like a, like a William Castle-style movie gimmick. But I don't think it's coincidence, as I said, that this came out in 2011 during the new 3D boom brought on in the wake of Avatar. So, of course, yeah, today I did order my, my uh, Shark Boy 3D DVD and my Spy Kids 4 3D Blu-ray. So, Dan, you might have to come over and check those out. Sure, yeah. Um, just a couple thoughts on this this one. Andrew, have you seen Spy Kids 4 yet? I have not. Okay, but Dan, you have, right? I did. I watched that one today. So it's like a reboot. So we have a new mom and dad and a new set of Spy Kids. And the mom and dad are played by Jessica Alba, who is a regular in Robert Rodriguez films. She's in Machete 1 and Machete 2, which I assume I'll talk about here in a minute. And then she's in, I think, both Sin Cities. And here she plays the mom, but she's actually the stepmom of the two kids. So the family theme here is not normal atomic family struggling, but a sort of broken, reconstructed family settling where a Jessica Alba playing the stepmom is trying to connect with the the two kids here. Right. And I, and I think the term is nuclear family. Oh. Uh, not atomic family, but... <laughs> You've got one, Dan, so I, I guess I'll defer to you, but I've... That's what we get when we're two and a half hours into a... <laughs> recorded a podcast and also two and a half beers in so yeah i'm i'm getting a little buzzed here i'm getting an uh electroshock gumball going on in my brain <laughs> but it's in the birthday spirit this one i didn't take as detailed notes on but i thought it was interesting it was better and more compelling than i was expecting 
yeah, it did have those new cast members. And the dad is. Yeah, so it's Joel McHale is the real actor. Okay, Joel McHale, and it's Jeff on Community, Jeff Winger. Okay, I thought his, I thought his name was Jeff Winger. Yes. That's mainly what I know him from, too, so I don't blame you. But he's playing, like, a different character. He's kind of more doofy than Jeff. Because, like, on Community, he's the cool guy who's, like, above everybody else. Yeah. He's, like, not a dork like Abed and Troy. Right. But here, he's he's trying to make it as a TV show host, and he's going to be the spy catcher, even though he never catches any spies. And he's, like, he doesn't really know what's going on around him because, in fact, his wife is the spy. This movie felt the least like a quote-unquote spy kids movie. It was almost like they were trying to make like a postmodern or ironic spy kids movie. Like it starts out almost trying to depict real life, but then like the character's world gets gradually invaded and overrun by the wackiness that characterized the spy kids films. It also is worth noting that there's a very heavy presence of a robot dog voiced by Ricky Gervais and just an abundance, overwhelming abundance of scatological humor that was not present in any of the three other Spy Kids movies. Also, the family is not Hispanic, which to me made it feel very much less like an actual Spy Kids movie. Yeah, I did notice that, that it's it's a very white bread family here. Apparently, Jessica Alba is supposed to be related to Antonio Banderas. Yeah, like she's she's supposed to be the sister of Gregorio, but I don't even know if they say that. I just know that because I read the Wikipedia article. No, they do say that. They well, I think I don't think they said explicitly. She's like the aunt. Yeah, because the original Spy Kids themselves appear. And they have some fun stuff. They repeat a bunch of lines from the original trilogy. Oh, shiitake mushrooms. My mom can't be a spy. She's not that cool. Like stuff that that was in the first movie. It gets repeated here. Right. Because we do have, importantly, the original Spy Kids actors come back. We have eight years older Carmen and Juni show up. And it's kind of interesting that, I mean, Alexa Vega... I mean, she looks good, but also she aged like a normal person, whereas Jessica Alba is like superhumanly beautiful. Right. (laughs) And they're all supposed to be plain spies here. Yeah. Junie looks like he has a SoundCloud. (laughs) Yeah, Junie is a creep. He, He looks like he was probably well cast. I haven't seen the Rob Zombie Halloween movies, but... Older Junie, I think, Andrew, they they used him for, like, a creepy vibe, right? Definitely. Or, like, a sinister vibe? Yes. There's also a lot of Jeremy Piven in this movie from Entourage. Okay. Yeah, I had not seen him in other things before, but there's a lot of him here. So I, I want to talk about some things I really liked about Spy Kids 4, which is that um, time travel comes into the mix like, sure, the Ricky Gervais dog is annoying, but I I think this story definitely had some pertinence to Robert Rodriguez's life. Because the main gist of it is that, like, time is speeding up, and that's what the agents have to deal with here. 
So I, I think probably Robert Rodriguez made the first three Spy Kids films and considered it done. And then all of a sudden looked up one day and realized that eight more years had gone by. And of course, he'd been making movies in the interim, but I think he found himself struck by how fast the time had gone. And so that's basically the, the whole thing here is time goes by really fast. Uh, it's kind of like M. Night Shyamalan's Old that came out in this past year, but almost more effective than that. I, I don't know. I Also, I really liked the Timekeeper's costume, who's the villain here. Yeah. And he, he just has a goofy clock mask over his head like a Batman villain, and he has a, a pendulum necktie. I think he is TikTok. I don't know. Well, Jeremy Piven plays all of them. So there's TikTok who has the goggles. TikTok has the goggles and the timekeeper has the clock mask. Oh, I had those mixed up then. But yeah, no, that's pretty good. I agree that it, it strived to carry over Spy Kids' ability to carry a distinct family theme as a part of the movie. And it actually, I agree, it, it, it had some beats that it hit, some meaningful notes that it, it wanted to opine upon. And the fact that, and we're verging the spoilers here, sorry, Andrew, but the fact that the villain, his motivation is that he himself was the victim of losing time with loved ones is poignant. And it, it works decently well. Not enough to really elevate the movie that much for me, but it's not nothing. Oh yeah, that's the other thing is the moral is spend time with your kids. One of the lines that I really liked was, the only thing that you'll always be able to find time for later is regret. Hmm. Yeah. I found that impactful. So that's the message here. It's like, seize the family time while you can. Can I go on Machete and Machete Kills real quick? Please do. So they're both very R-rated and thus very removed from anything else we've watched here, which have all been kids-focused. That said, I liked both of them, and I liked both of them pretty decently well. So they both star Danny Trejo, and they are both self-described, quote-unquote, mexploitation films. So this goes back to what Brian was saying, where Robert Rodriguez builds his films around exploitation movie tropes. And we see that here, where he's like the hero that simultaneously all the women love, but also he's a total badass and has no connections. And he's just kind of a mysterious hero. And they're over the top and fun. The first one is a little grittier. Both of them feel ahead of their time. The second one, Machete Kills, is a lot more comedic. So Machete is about this whole conspiracy of the Texas... I think he's a governor or maybe he's a mayor or something. This whole conspiracy to get him reelected. But it ends up being just a very literalized violent parable about the illegal immigration political debate. I mean, honestly, this was written in 2010, and I know this was a thing in the headlines in 2010. The big climax is around, will this guy get to build a big wall? And people killing people so that he doesn't get to build a big wall. And so it very much felt like it had renewed relevance in the Trump era. And then the, the second one is machete kills and it ditches grittiness to the point that it just feels like a comedy movie almost it's like an action comedy 
and it inverts a lot of expected things. So like the villain, rather than him trying to kill the villain and all the villains minions trying to stop him, it's flipped. So the, the villain has on his chest, in his heart, a connection to a nuke. And if he dies, the nuke goes off. So Machete is trying to protect the head villain and all of the villain's minions on the villain's orders are trying to kill the villain. So Machete is spending the whole movie protecting the villain. So it's like a really weird and clever inversion of what you were expecting to happen. And then the movie ends with a kind of new villain who is a billionaire who is investing his money in going to space because he thinks space is cool and he wants to go to space. And that has been a, a total thing of the past couple of years is that billionaires have decided they think space is cool and they want to go to space. Like we've had Jeff Bezos. Elon Musk actually appears in the second Machete movie. Is <laughs> uh, like a SpaceX guy supporting Machete. And it sets up it, this incredible sequel hook for the third Machete movie. And I think Machete 2 bombed. I liked it. I wish it didn't bomb. But the the sequel hook it sets up is that in space, the character who's kind of a Jeff Bezos, Bill Gatesy type millionaire, but like evil. He has some of Danny Trejo and it, he's already shown that he can make clone super soldiers in the second one. And so he's going to make clone Danny Trejos battling each other in space as the main machete tries to take him down. Uh, I'm, I hope that movie gets made someday. I'm skeptical it will. But I, I really dug both of the machetes and they were smarter than I expected in terms of like having things on their mind, but also just ridiculously over the top. There's like an absurd amount of machete slice in half decapitations. My favorite actual thing that's related to a kill is that they're at a like a hospital and they're just talking. And one of the nurse says, how long are intestines? And the doctor says, intestines are 60 feet long, but they're all coiled up inside of you. And that's what I would call a Chekhov's intestines, because later in the movie, like 15 minutes later, Machete cuts someone open uses their intestines as a rope to swing from an escape from a building. So that's the kind of stuff you're dealing with here in, in Machete. And so I guess the idea is that Danny Trejo is the same character in Spy Kids as he is in these Machete movies. But there's actually cameos from a bunch of Spy Kids actors in these movies. And so Robert Rodriguez's line is that it is a parallel universe where Machete has gone through a slightly harder life than he did in the Spy Kids movies. And so it's not exactly the same universe, but it's sort of the same universe. Yeah, same guy. He's still called Isidore Cortez. Right. That's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you did the research, Dan. And what I'm hearing is that Robert Rodriguez is a prophet. We should all listen to what he has to say. <laughs> yeah, I want to he hear what he would have to say about a third one. So here's the the weird where things go into like uncanny, freaky territory. So one is here's the two connections that could take things even further out of the Spy Kids cinematic universe. 
So one is there is apparently a deleted scene that is on the Machete DVD, if you buy Machete, where he interacts with a character named Edgar McGraw, who wears a cowboy hat. Now, Edgar McGraw appears in From Dusk Till Dawn, as well as Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill movies, which also have crossover with a bunch of other Quentin Tarantino movies. So all of a sudden, if you accept this deleted scene as canon, now the Spy Kids cinematic universe cross-sects with the Quentin Tarantino cinematic universe. And then you just opened up an entire can of worms. Like there's now 27 movies or something you can include in here. It's never going to end. No. But this has to end at some point. We've been recording for three and a half hours now, so... I'll just throw in the very last thing real quick, which is that in Machete Kills, one character has a crotch gun, which is a gun that it is attached to your lower half. And every time you thrust, it fires a bullet. Oh, oh, so the crotch gun is also in From Dusk Till Dawn. Exactly. So that's the other connection to From Dusk Till Dawn. If you accept those to be in the same universe, then that opens the same can of worms. So good things, bad things. <laughs> just broadly... uh couple things i have to say is this series certainly has an auteur vibe you get the impression in a lot of it that you do see one man's vision it's pretty weird pretty out there uh but when you got robert rodriguez directing editing producing scoring a lot of the music although he did have help from uh john debney who i think we've name dropped before he does good work he did elf but, uh, you know, Robert Rodriguez, this is a passion project for him. Uh, that's that's my good thing that I'm shouting out. Well, what else have you got, Dan? And you can separate out by movies, things you liked, things you didn't like. I liked the threads that tied the movies together, the family themes, the themes of the isolated creator, um, the themes of trying to find a false reality as a substitute for your main reality. It felt more unified than I might have expected. Yeah, I agree with that. Andrew, what are some of your thoughts? I like Floop. I think we should have had a Floop spinoff instead of, well, not instead of Machete, but in addition to Machete. Yeah, sure. Get a get a Floop origin story. Yeah. Telling how he got his position of influence. <laughs> Cast Paul Rubens as the villain in that one. I've always wanted to cosplay as <laughs> Floop, but... I didn't think it would be recognizable. You would really have to nail the costume. Otherwise, I need to watch more of the extended universe. I need to watch the machetes. I need to watch four. But I like all of it. So I'm going to be working on that real soon. So one thing I didn't say is the scene when Floop has got the parents chained up. The chains are, like, made out of Play-Doh or something. They're, like, rainbow-colored, and all the links are weird shapes. And that was just so striking to me this time. It's, it's like, perverse. I don't know. Just that it, it's like a doodle come to life, but then it's real chains that can actually restrain someone and, and like, imprison a person. Just the clash of those two ideas that it can really be dangerous, but also be so childish was so striking. Yeah, that's good. Basically spy kids one raised in my estimation and everything else went down the other way. 
because Spy Kids 1 had more of a full plot for both the adults and the children and really developed the theme that each group was struggling to relate to the other. It definitely took the adults the most seriously. What about some not-so-good things, Dan? I think the movie's increasing reliance on digital photography, digital editing, and CGI detached it from reality to the point that I stopped caring beyond anything except attachment to a few themes as well as just appreciating the kind of ambitious action set pieces it was willing to indulge in but emotionally detached me for sure yeah i'll say that as an 11 year old i was kind of creeped out by some of the stuff in the the first movie that i ended up liking more now the thumb thumbs didn't bother me as much anymore and the fooglies still bother me but like in a good way i guess i don't know it's it's just more compelling and it makes you think um whereas just the second and the third one are completely washed in cgi you know the making of showed how they were completely made in a blue screen room that was like actually pretty tiny so there's a lot of running in place and it's just all very fake and manufactured to the point that you're drawn out of it so do we want to stick some ratings on these things? Sure. I'm ready. All right. So I am ready with ratings for one, two, and three. If you want to put things on any more than that, you're welcome to. I did watch four, uh, but but we can see how it goes. So Spy Kids 1, Dan. And uh, well, Andrew, you're our, you're our new guest. So how, how do we want to break this down, Dan? What order? What kind of order do we want to go in? Let's do me, then Andrew, then you. So Andrew, I don't know if you recall our rating scale in fact i'll read this to the users as well as andrew (laughs) the users like we're in an mmo like we're trapped in a video game i think they're the listeners that's a good point that's the equivalent of you saying uh viewers i say users because i'm a software developer by it's like the it's the same thing but listeners are is it good is our signature section where we give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale Ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Torde Good, which is an eight out of eight. And I will just read them for you real quick, Andrew. This might be helpful. Very not good. That's a one out of eight. Not good. That's a two out of eight. Not not good. That's a three out of eight. Good-ish is a four out of eight. And then we get into the good territory. So good is a five out of eight. Very good is a six out of eight. Exceptionally good is a seven out of eight. And our masterpiece rating, an 8 out of 8, we have labeled as Tour Day Good. Yes. Sure. So should I hop into Spy Kids 1? Please. So Spy Kids 1, to me, is easily the most coherent and compelling of the Spy Kids movies. And I have to say, I actually think out of the entire Spy Kids universe is probably my favorite individual film. It is on the borderline between a good for me which is a five and a very good i'm gonna give it just the barest of very goods i'm gonna give spy kids a six i think it's a good movie legitimately a good movie i think it's a in fact i think it's barely a very good movie for all the interesting things that it does and cool themes that it has and it's a wish fulfillment exciting kids movie very much from the perspective of kids 
if you're coming at it from an adult, you might not feel quite so strongly positively, but I think it does what it tries to do extremely well. I'm going to give it a six out of eight, a very good. What about you, Andrew? I don't have your guys' critical eye. It's a lot for me. However, I think you're right. It's definitely the heaviest with the spy gear and just spy influences. And I really, really like Flip. In the second one, I think he's trying a bit hard. I like him more in the first. And it's throwing me off a little bit, but it's not out of 10. It's out of 8. However, I think I would still give the first a 7. Exceptionally good. Brian, what about you? Nice. So for me, it also gets a 6. A very good. This is one that has grown in my estimation, this watch. It really does deliver the best full package like it tells a consistent coherent story it gives business and development to both the adult and child characters in a way that the sequels definitely don't and yeah i like floop too (laughs) i was very put off by the fooglies as an 11 year old but i like the weirdness of it and the like psychology behind mutilating the agents and especially the dad into these like creations and and now television is going to be lord of the earth and and floop reigning from his holodeck it's it's entertaining it's it's well told and it's not as reliant on just the complete overwash of cgi pseudo reality what about the island of lost dreams that we saw in spy kids 2 so If Spy Kids 1 is just over the line between a 5 and a 6, I would encourage each of you to lock in your ratings. Okay, I've got my sealed envelope. Yeah. For me, it did significantly less. It was diminishing returns right from the outset, and it got more incoherent as it went. And the CGI being the basis for the action set pieces didn't do too much for me. And so I kind of enjoyed moments, but not enough that I ever felt like it verged towards a good movie in whole. So I am going to give it a high-ish three out of eight, which is not not good. And I want to emphasize, I, I do think it ties a little closer to the first Spy Kids than the third does. But so, you know, even though I'm giving it three ratings lower, it's more like two and a quarter ratings lower if you were to span it across the a uh, analog scale. But um, I'm going to give it a not not good. That's a three out of eight. What about you, Andrew? Well, obviously, all of these movies are very close to me. The CGI doesn't bother me as much. I think all the combined animals are really good, and I like Steve Buscemi. Uh, It is pretty wacky, and it's hard to say. I'd say four. Yeah. Good-ish. Yeah, so when I saw this one when I was 12, it was, like, unquestionably my favorite of the franchise. I really liked the mad scientist character who's trapped in his lab on the island, and just that I had never seen Steve Buscemi before, he... He really charmed me. It just his weird offbeat performance. I would say I, I like him more in like Fargo now. 
and this movie just doesn't hold up the same way. It's a step down from the first movie. It's going to be a four from me. There's just... They don't give business to the parents other than they're, like, tracking the kids the whole movie. And, yeah, they're phoning it in way more than they were the first time out. And so I I was kind of struck watching it now that it, it just it's just not as good as the first movie. And now we talk about... The third installment, Spy Kids 3D. What did you think, guys? So I think of this old column I used to read on AV Club rating some of the most hated movies of all time. And he would watch them and write really long articles about them. And then he would give them one of three ratings. And the three ratings were failure, which is just a bad, bad, unenjoyable movie. Fiasco which is a movie that is bad, but also interesting in some way. And Secret Success, which is a movie that has a reputation for being bad, but actually does good things in a kind of compelling, offbeat way. And for me, Spy Kids 3 is the epitome of a fiasco, which is a movie that is bad, but does really interesting things in its badness. I'm going to give Spy Kids 3 a 2 out of 8 a not good. I don't think it's a good movie. I don't think it verges anywhere close to good, but I think all of the things it does about tying together to the previous trilogy, bringing all of the characters together at the end, having a broadened definition of family and thinking about all that is kind of interesting, even if it doesn't make the movie itself any more watchable as you're watching it. In fact, I have it as my least favorite of the eight movies in the Spy Kids Cinematic Universe. Man. What about you, Andrew? Well, Where are you landing on Spy Kids yeah. 3? Follow your heart and, and say what you want to say. <laughs> well, once again, I don't have your guys's ability to analyze things smartly. And I don't want to let my nostalgic goggles get in the way. But 3D is the one I remember most fondly. The McDonald's toys were something real special. I like everybody coming back. I like the 3D-ness overall. It definitely strays the most from anything spy-related. And I don't like that there's so little Carmen. And I do need to watch the extended universe. This is just the three in my mind. But, well, I said one was a seven. I'd put three at a six. What what does that translate to? Very good. Yeah, I'd say very good. I watched it again and again. Nice. I mean, we did see it twice in theaters. I will say I was literally wearing nostalgia goggles to check this one out. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, it gets a three out of eight. A not, not good. And yeah, it's got some very interesting ideas. I said I liked how the toy maker is talking to himself in different incarnations. One thing I didn't mention is those three guys that Junie is traveling with through the game. Once they exit and are out in the real world, we find out that the archetypes are all switched around. So the actor who was playing the cool guy in the game is actually a nerd. And the guy who is playing the nerd is actually like a dumb lunkhead. And it's all swapped around. So... 
you know, uh, it's kind of like a, a twist on the Wizard of Oz. Like, they exist in the real world, but they were representing themselves as what they wanted to be inside the virtual world. And it, it just has some big concepts, and they're not all realized in maybe the best way. And it's super saturated with CGI more so than anything else, and, and there's a lot of technical gimmicks uh, but I think it did have things to say, and I think it was prophetic. And Rodriguez is a skilled filmmaker, a guy who can put on all these hats and play all these different roles in the booth to bring a movie to fruition. Uh, so it, it's not nothing. It's scattershot, and it's weird, and it's not as good as the previous efforts to me. But there are things to revisit and things to appreciate. Brian, do you want to throw ratings on... Spy Kids 4. Spy Kids 4, and I don't know if this ends up on our spreadsheet, Dan's a mathematician along with a software engineer, and, and he he likes the data. Uh, so I don't know if this is official. I liked Spy Kids 4 a little more than 3, actually. I was surprised, but I did go in with very low expectations. Um, I'm going to give this one a 4. Good-ish. Your, yeah, your mileage is really going to vary if you can tolerate the dog at all, because he was there all the time. Uh, but I found the theme of the passage of time speeding up very poignant, especially considering that I didn't watch this movie until, what, this is 2022? So another 11 years after it came out. Yeah. Just the message that you got to look forward and not back, I thought was a good way <laughs> to wrap up this birthday looking back at movies that came out starting when I was 11. Yeah, I can respect that for sure. I am right at the line of a not good movie and a not quite not good movie. I'm going to give it a just the barest of threes on not not good. And that is because it 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 had these thoughts about how to connect the past and the present and how we should, as Brian said, uh, make the most of our present. And I, I think it's a message that surpasses the execution of the message. But I appreciated that enough that I was hanging in there for the whole movie. Um, I'd put it slightly above Spy Kids 3. Also, there was more real stuff in this movie. It wasn't all in a blue screen room. There was car chases and like scenes that just took place in a house and things where you could tell they actually put stuff in front of the camera. So I thought that was interesting. It made it feel less like a Spy Kids movie as they had come to be established. Andrew, how do you feel about Shark Boy and Lava Girl? If you were to slap a rating on it. It was truly all over the place. I didn't know the thing about Robert having his children write basically the whole movie. I didn't expect before watching it that the Sharkboy and Lava Girl weren't actually real until the very end. Spoilers. Overall, I would say five. I don't have the mind to interpret these things but i would say five 
Well, we also have the body of almost 70 episodes where we like have a gauge for what is a four versus what is a one versus what is a eight. Yeah, that's respectable. I like the cookie, Dad. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird scene. There's a lot of weird scenes in that movie. But this is to me what I wanted Spy Kids 3 to be. Uh-huh. It's just like freaky and all over the place and like psychedelic i don't know lots of freudian shit going on dreamy technology weird superpower stuff and just so aggressively ugly just like artistically ugly Uh uh-huh just put it put it in the louvre ugly (laughs) i too am gonna give it a five i thought it was good in its weird off the wall energy that I don't know if I would recommend to like, I don't know, someone who's writing for the New York Times. But for me, I was like cackling my ass off at some of this stuff. So Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl, Dan's Hot Take, good movie here. We're giving it a five. I like it. That was my second favorite or like right up there with the first machete for my second favorite of the the Spy Kids cinematic universe. When Brian first mentioned that we were going to be watching the Spy Kids for this. I said that I had never seen Sharp Boy and Love Girl until I was down here, but that I thought it was pretty hilarious and that he should definitely watch it. So I hope that's next on his list. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to open another beer and I'm going to watch Shark Boy and Lava Girl. But <laughs> <laughs> we have been sitting here recording for four hours now, so we got to put this in the can at some point. Uh, man, I'm glad we got something out of this. This has been a good birthday, actually. Yeah, it's been fun. I, I hope you've appreciated our, our slog through the Spy Kids franchise. Were, were I to throw a rating on the last three movies I saw, I would give Machete and Machete Kills both a five out of eight, which is a good. I thought they were both good movies in respective ways. And I would give We Can Be Heroes... A high four. I actually really enjoyed that one. It was almost a good movie. It was a little creaky in a few places, but I would uh, recommend that one. It it kind of subverts some superhero stuff and has some pretty good character chemistry. It's it's bordering on good for me. So we can be heroes. I have a high four. There you go. Great. Good work, Dan. As always, you've gone above and beyond the call of duty. But uh, time goes ever forward. You know, the clock truly is speeding up. I want to cosplay as the timekeeper. <laughs> Definitely keeping that in the mind. For- I want to be a thumb thumb. That's all I want to be. That would be impressive. I want to be a thumb thumb who takes the transmooker device. No, I want to be a thumb thumb <laughs> who comments that people take the transmooker device. <laughs> <laughs> so that I can talk about the transmooker device. <laughs> Man, another potential uh, episode title is I Like the Cookie Dad. (laughs) There is a cookie dad. You gotta be ready for him. You talked about Scream earlier. He's Officer Dewey. Okay, well, I'm ready. I'm... Oh, is he? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! What the... Are you kidding me? Okay, I'm looking this up right now. <laughs> okay, no, so I googled Shark Boy and Lava Girl earlier today. It did say starring David Arquette in the little blurb. You're kidding me. David Arquette plays the dad. 
Here I was like, who is this doofy-ass dad? And it was the jackass from the Scream movies. We might have to have you back for uh, for Scream 5 coverage, Andrew. Which is just called Scream, right? I hope I'm not wrong. No, you're right. So you've seen all of the Screams, Brian? Yeah, we watched them for a previous episode of the podcast, as we watched the first uh, four. Yeah, that was back in my torrenting days. I watched several of them. Yeah, Dan, uh, you should uh, have some slasher talk with Andrew, because he's definitely done more research than I have. Well, yeah, the very beginning, literally the day I got my first laptop, I torrented every Friday the 13th, day by day, and I still haven't seen Jason X, but we have it on DVD, so I should watch it, but yeah. Nice. Should I introduce the next movie, Brian? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You've been waiting for that. And that was the Spy Kids saga. I'm sure it will continue on in some form. There's actually a Netflix TV show we haven't checked out yet, so I'm sure Dan's going to be queuing that up next. I got to still watch Shark Boy. Uh, so I'll, I'll crack open another beverage before I do. I appreciate you all joining me here on my birthday. But the calendar moves forward. So, Dan, what lies ahead here on the goods? So if we can get the logistics right, we're going to have my brother, Will, who joined us in a previous episode to discuss Tokyo Drifter. And we're going to be discussing the 2000 Wong Kar Wai Chinese film, In the Mood for Love. Brian, I don't know if you've seen this one or you're familiar with it. It's a well-regarded romantic drama. It's Chinese, and we will be discussing that with my brother, Will. So that was the movie he picked for, for his next appearance. Okay, cool. So I have seen a Wong Kar Wai film before, but I'm going to have to do some digging to figure out which one it was. Gotcha. Uh, but I'll have that for you next episode. Neither me nor Will has seen this, so it will be fresh for both of us. But he's seen some other Wong Kar Wai. I've never seen any Wong Kar Wai, so uh, it'll be even fresher for me. So for more fresh coverage, tune in next time to The Goods, a film podcast. We appreciate that you were here this time around. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Andrew. Happy birthday to both of you. This has been uh, a hoot and a half. Thank you for having me again. It's always fun. Have a good night, everybody.